Hello, filmmakers and watchers and lovers of, and dreamers and thinkers about film. On today's classic episode of How to Make a Film, Dan and I talk about the shocking, almost angry-making coincidence that we both have plays on stage at this very moment in our dumbly different countries. We discuss the rain and thunder of the horror genre, from jump scares to existential dread, and how films like Skinamarink might inspire you to make your own full-featured film for almost nothing at all. Dan unleashes his vision for a new horror film inspired by the wide shots of John Carpenter's Halloween. And though we do our best to talk about the brand new, controversial Loki episode, the fact remains that I haven't seen it, and though Dan was near it as it lit the room, he can't remember it. My name is Sean Hurley, and I'm a playwright and TV show staff writer and sitting directly across the woolly, yet sheepless Atlantic Ocean from me, about to make a short horror film consisting only of wide shots for some reason, is Dan Freeman, writer, director, Loki episode lurker, and the veritable John Carpenter of the film in progress, Hold Excalibur. Let's do it. Let's begin the show, Dan. How are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. I'm I'm tired after a week of rehearsals from for my play, and I imagine you are is yours on now? Uh no. Yours is going first. I think your yours premieres the first. Yeah, and then mine is the tenth. Oh right. But it, I think I think that's just remarkably strange that we figured out how to get our plays to appear on the earth, yours in England yeah. this time, and mine in the United States. Like we did a good job. Um, making that strange thing happen. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Again, I have to bring. I mean, I'm a modest guy, as you know. But yes, uh, immodest. What did you? It sounded like you said immodest accidentally. It doesn't really matter, does it? Because if I was mm. saying I was immodest, then no. Anyway, the point is, I am wholly responsible for your career as a playwright. So I just want to claim that honor. That's true. And I dedicated my first, well, it wasn't really my first play. My first couple of plays were one-man shows that I just did by myself, kind of rinky-dink. But but after many years of like toiling and other writing things, doing TV shows and stuff like that, it was Dan who said, listen, just write a play. And that was maybe three years ago. And I wrote a play called Food and Shelter, and that got performed. And I dedicated it to you. Yeah. About which I am deeply, <laughs> deeply grateful. I'm very honored by that. And I am very, uh -huh. very proud of the fact that I am wholly responsible for your <laughs> playwriting career. <laughs> you know, like I've got a friend who had a serious operation, Martin Tomlinson, who's an actor, and he had a, a very serious operation like a good number of years ago. And every time I see him, I, I say, you owe me. <laughs> He had a rip round donation thing to get this very expensive operation, and oh, I, and I, I thought you weren't going to explain it. I thought you were just going to say Martin owes you, but for no real reason, just other, other than you say it. You just go around telling people they owe you, that you're responsible for X and Y. I did it. Well, yeah, I do that. I do do that, but also. Mm. I find that if you're going to tell a story or an anecdote, it's best to start at the end and then do the beginning. That's good. So that's what I've done here. Well, there was a lot of there was a lot of tension. Yeah, I know. Yeah, anyway, I donated a, a paltry amount of money to his Whit Brown thing, and then I every time I see him, I say, "You owe me." <laughs> so what I'm saying is, you owe it all to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I I mean, aside from all that, that was a very necessary 
it wasn't really advice. It was more just like um, a shove and a recommendation. Like, stop focusing mm. on doing this very difficult thing, you know, trying to push TV concepts out into the world or pilots or treatments, trying to get people to read things to turn them into shows and just, you know, pull back and do something kind of on your own in private that you want to do and ignore that that clamorous world of Hollywood. And it was just, it was a, it was very sweet. And I thank you for that. We can't keep being so grateful to you. Well, I don't, I don't think it was that articulate or philosophical. I just thought you'd be good at playwriting and turned out you were. So, I mean, if you're near Putney uh, in Vermont, um, is it Vermont? Yeah, Putney, Vermont. Yeah, Putney, Vermont. Go and see this play because I would love to. Uh, the play for which I was wholly responsible is beautiful. It's, it's really, really special. And um, yeah, one day I will see one of Sean's plays. Well, this... This one you are not wholly responsible for. So this is my second one. I am. Oh, so you're taking credit for this as well? For the career. Oh, the whole thing. Did yeah, you wouldn't have written any plays if I hadn't told you. Okay. I always think that one of my, my greatest quality, although I have many, mainly if you're listening, I mean, obviously you're listening to this, but what you can't tell is that I'm a tremendously good looking man. Mm. I mean, I, I'm a looker, <laughs> but also I, I think I'm good at crewing up because i'm good at appreciating other people's talents mm. i think i think that's a that's a filmmaking skill a theater skill as well but being able to see other people's abilities and talents and where they really are able to bring something to a, a film or a, a theater product or whatever it is i don't think everyone can do that i don't think everyone can just can see that this person is actually very talented at this or that you know it's it's Mm. I think it's a nice talent. I, it's one I don't mind boasting about. And I think it's a nice thing to be able to do to recognize talent in others. And, uh, you know, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. When I'm my play at the moment, I'm working with three actors who are relatively unknown. I don't think that's rude to say that. And I'm really pleased that I feel like I've, I was right because, the, you know, you, you audition people and then you get them in. And um, I'm really thrilled at how it's going. I mean, I, I probably would say that as publicity, but I mean, they routinely make me laugh and they bring stuff to the play that I hadn't envisaged. I couldn't have foreseen. Mm. So that's a great pleasure to me. Mm. How, how is yours? How are your rehearsals? Are you at the rehearsals for yours? I go to them when I can. Putney is it's a two-hour drive for me mm. to get out there and then two hours back. So it's kind of far. Mm. But when the director wants me to be there, I'm there. So I'm there like once or twice a week and maybe on the weekends as well. Mm. It's nice that the director wants you there because a lot of the time, I would say, directors are quite defensive of having the writers there, aren't they? Um, I don't know. Sometimes anyway. I don't, I don't have that experience. I think uh, underconfident directors. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think... It's probably also a thing where directors could be familiar with that experience and it not being very promising, like having a writer sitting there and mm. that might just throw the whole thing into a ditch because the writer might constantly be like, this yeah. is not what I wrote. This is not how I imagined it. You know, the sense of complaint that just looms in the mm. possibility of having having a writer there. It depends on the director though, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a good director will communicate with the writer and just really try and, you know, be in sympathy with what the piece was, yeah. was intended to be. And a good writer will stay off the set unless they're, yeah. or the, the stage, unless they're asked to be there because there's got to be one person. Yeah. One captain on the ship, as we yeah, I think memorably said last 
week. With my first play, Food and Shelter, I was at every single rehearsal. And that's because the play itself was very enigmatic and obtuse and sort of hard to mm. hard to track and parse and all that stuff. And so we kind of grappled with it together. But with this one, it's not like that. And so really, I'm not needed. I'm more like a stage manager. I help with lines. Right. And if there's any kind of wonder about, you know, behavior or what does this mean, I'll answer that. But it's very rare because it's a pretty clear and simple play to a certain extent. Mm. I mean, I sort of like the idea of, like, I wouldn't have minded just never going to rehearsal and just coming to the show and seeing it. Mm. Maybe it would be a disaster, the worst thing ever, but that would be really just a very fine experience mm. of of a thing, you know, that you are part of. But as you're saying, like your actors are bringing things to their readings that make it maybe funnier in places that you just didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And that's that's almost like collaborative writing. They're almost helping you writing in a way by presenting what you've written in their way. I just think the whole theater film writing thing is such a collaborative thing that the text itself, even though it's vitally important, I don't know what percentage of the overall thing it is. It's it's all of it, but it then in the final doneness of it, it feels like it's only like twenty percent, and the rest of it is sort of everything else around it. I don't know if you find that to be true. Well, yeah, I think it depends how you do it. I know is it Martin McDonough who do, did uh, the Inishirin? Yeah, I mean he doesn't sort of deviate at all. He doesn't allow the actors to add anything or change anything. I mean his work obviously doesn't suffer because of that. But to me, the script is a product of my experience. And if I'm directing as well, then all I've got is my experience. And if somebody comes up with something, you've got a group of actors, all who have loads of experience that they could bring to it, and they might find something better, and often do. And so it seems stupid not to just take that. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, I, I love yeah. getting new stuff like that and seeing it, you know, bringing more to it. And then I get the credit. You know, yeah. <laughs> But I love seeing what, especially actors, what they come up with and, you know, if they can improvise or change something or come up with something, they get really imbued, yeah. they embody the character and then come up with something right. even better. Then that's miles more gooder, in my opinion. I almost feel like at the very beginning, you've written something and nobody's done anything with it. The the play or the, the script, the film script, what it is, is 100% the script. And then by the end of the time when you're performing it on stage if it's excellent it's almost like the script has disappeared mm. in its participation it's like it's left the thing and everybody's taken it over and i don't know i, th I almost feel like that's the goal is for the script to disappear mm. I, I agree i almost feel like with food and shelter at the end of it like that i didn't write it i felt this strange thing of like mm. you know even though i don't think we really pulled it off I did feel like strangely dissociated from it. Like I didn't have anything to do with that. That just happened. It's exciting, isn't it? How that happens. But it's, it's almost like security. You know, the first time your child goes and stays mm. away. I mean, my kids didn't care at all. I mean, I was in, in pieces and the, the, my kids were like, you know, yeah, I go and stay away. And it wasn't a big thing to them. And I thought on reflection, that was a good thing because they felt completely confident that I'd be here when they, when they came back. And, you know, mm. the, I think in a way it's like that with a script. If you have a very solid script, a secure island, and you're sure of it, then you can swim far away from that island mm. in the secure knowledge that you've got somewhere to come back to if you need to right it's a great blueprint is what you're doing with a script and then it's a launch pad for for the talents of others mm -hmm. and so and that, that's a i'm sorry to interrupt you i was trying not to i'm always trying not to interrupt and then i interrupt i don't know i don't know what to do about that maybe i should, maybe I should raise my hand 
that's what I do in my family. I raise my hand when I want to talk because they're all really, yeah. Are they all just much quicker than you? And so you're just kind of sitting slowly at the corner and you have to raise your hand up. Yeah, just beaten down. <laughs> yeah. And then when you when you do have a comment to make to the family, is it just something like? I need a glass of water, or is it? <laughs> I, I have a story of the day to tell. <laughs> Please let me out. Stuff like that. You know? <laughs> okay. Oh, Dan. So, have you been watching anything, seeing anything, had any cinematic or television type experiences that you want to uh, talk about? Yeah, I had a sort of thought. I watched Loki. Oh, yeah. And I can't remember which episode, but it's the episode that everyone thought was really bad. I think it was a couple of weeks ago and everyone complained about it a lot. And then I realized I hadn't noticed it was really bad or I didn't think it was really bad. And then I realized I hadn't really watched it. I'd kind of had it on while I was doing something, you know, writing emails or something. Oh, I see. And then it occurred to me that I think you probably have to concentrate harder on a bad film than a, or a bad program than a good one. Because a good one, it's clear what's going on and sucks you in and a bad one. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was a clue. Maybe you can't watch bad things. You just ignore them. Mm. You know, it's so bad, you just find yourself walking away. Uh, and then you think you watched it. Well, I don't know if it was bad. Oh, you don't, You still don't know? Well, everyone else, not everyone else, but you know, it was a kind of like there was a bit of a backlash yeah. um, online about it. And uh, But I didn't know. Anyway, that was my thought. But I watched Ridley Scott's film Legend, the fantasy film. Oh, the David Bowie long ago? No, that's Labyrinth. That's Labyrinth. And, yeah. They both begin with L, so I was I was close. <laughs> oh. Actually, the creature effects guy who I'm working with on Hold Excalibur is William Todd Jones, who's a kind of world-renowned master of creature effects. And he did Labyrinth with uh, Jim Henson. Oh. And he did all sorts of, I think he stood in for David Bowie and stuff. He did a lot of the creatures and stuff. He he worked on Batman with um, Michael Keaton. Keaton? And yeah. Anyway, he's a fascinating guy. He worked on Labyrinth and he's working on Hold Excalibur as well, which is cool. But but not Legend. Not Legend. Not Legend has Tom Cruise in it. And I, I watched it because, again, I was just kind of sitting doing menial tasks and as it's a fantasy, I thought, you know, I maybe learn something from it. I didn't really expect to learn much, but it there it's got a lot to it actually. It particularly opens in a in a way that I really like. It opens with the the credits run over a kind of introduction to the world. So immediately you're in the mythical forest as soon as the first credit comes up. And then it being a Ridley Scott film, it has quite beautiful environments and little creatures and things. And the tableaus you get at the beginning of the protagonist sort of running around in this beautiful flowery forest are quite special. There are huge trees and so on. So it's not great. And it's certainly of its time. And it has Tim Curry, I think, in an, in an enormous devil suit. But it's got, you know, it's got quite a lot to it. I, I feel like I have absolutely no idea about this movie. Like, it completely missed me as a public object. <laughs> but I feel like I, I know all of Ridley Scott and Tom Cruise movies, even Tim Curry. Mm. I feel like I have a, my hands around both of their careers. Not strongly, but enough. Like, I mm. could tell you whether Tom Cruise was in a movie called Legend, which I would say he wasn't before you mentioned it. Well, I got news for you. He, he he was. I I don't know what ha I don't know what happened. Well, I, why do I have this hole of Tom Cruise and Ridley Scott? I know what you're going to say now. Should I? Should you watch it? Which is what you you always ask me. No, now I can't say it. Uh, nah, you shouldn't watch it. 
<laughs> I don't. I mean, that's, a, that's an obvious question. I'm always asking you whether I should watch things. You, and you've come to resent this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know whether, I, see, I can't recommend it. <laughs> well, what would you recommend? What's something you would say, like, someone else should see? I'll have to think about that now. You don't like recommending things because you feel like possibly the other person's not going to like it and they're going to hold it against you. Yeah, maybe I just want to be liked too much. That's but it. I saw The Empty Man, which is interesting. I think it cost about $16 million to make, which isn't much when you look at it. I think that's correct. And it only grossed four. Ooh. But I had found that out afterwards. I watched it and it's a horror but it's flawed, but it's not to be dismissed. I think it's got a lot of very interesting and scary I images in it. Interestingly, and new scary images that sort of give you that, they're not jump scares, they give you a sort of sense of existential dread. Hmm. And uh, so I think its flaws are in the script and it could have been tightened up before it was made. Uh, you know, but again, that's easy to say, from my point of view. And it's it's certainly worth seeing, I think. You know, and you said uh, existential dread. I did watch the uh, trailer. Was there a bunch of kids and they talk about how, you know, you blow into a bottle. That's right. Yeah. And then the first thing that happens is that he knocks on your door. And the second thing is that you see him. And the third thing is that he comes for you. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you mentioned existential dread. And I almost feel like, you know, when we think about horror films, we think about bad ones, I think, first. I don't know why, but just like Friday the 13th or jump scared type movies. And then we move into something more like The Exorcist. I think when you're immediately given a genre like horror, I think I think of the worst things first. And then I sort of gradually move into the things that are horror that I really like. But I almost feel like existential dread is the place that horror has kind of been. It's almost its true home. And it sometimes is there. I think um, The Exorcist kind of has, has that in it. Yeah. But I think of like Ari Aster's recent movies, they are horror films, but they're not really jump scare. They're not really mm. too supernaturally. But it's more about this this unfathomable misery mm. that you can't even really point out what it is that you're feeling, you know, during Midsummer or during Hereditary. But it's a real strong, bleak grimness mm. <laughs> that, and I feel like horror seems to have matured in the last five or six years, at least for a time. You know, it'll probably immaturize itself. But there's a lot of very mature, like thoughtful horror coming out. And it feels like it's seated in that place of existential dread. Do you not think the Blair Witch Project was an existential? Yeah, I would say that was there with that too. Mm. Yeah. But but it also has plenty of jump scares. But I think the reason that people liked it, or it had almost jump scares that you were expecting that <laughs> didn't didn't happen. You're constantly waiting. Yeah. You know, there was, it was a very tense movie. But I do think it tapped into that kind of like sense that there's something going on in the world that we don't know about and it's awful. And we're just about to find out that our life is just not worth living <laughs> and something's about to reveal itself that is going to take all of life's value away. Mm. Um, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because I'm trying to think how to describe that quality. Because jump scares are easy, uh, are easy to describe, aren't they? But that kind of hollow, sort of grimy sense of true long horror. I almost feel like they're refashioning uh, your attachment to meaning over the course of two hours. 
I feel like you you lose attachment with what does the family mean? What does my role in society mean? What does reality itself mean? Is it made of this, this, and this? I feel like these these horror films are detaching you from all the things that you kind of know, and they're reattaching you to these different uncertainties. And then you're kind of left stranded and grief-struck. It's really miserable, <laughs> but it's very interesting. But I think you've hit on something there, because I think that how about maybe the jump scares are you're afraid of something, a monster, and the existential dread kind of thing is perhaps, as you say, more of a change in reality, mm -hmm. like more of a the world not being reliable anymore. I think the thing, the difference, the jump scare is there's something that's trying to kill you that's out there. And the existential dread fear is there's something inside me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you can do both of them, and I think a lot of horror films do both of them, because, you know, if you're going to be a horror filmmaker, I think you get into it because you like all the tricks in the book of the horror genre. You want to have jump scares and you want to have gore and you want to have, I don't know, moods and atmospheres that are just, you know, that's why there's always like a little uh, lullaby or children's song or baby doll, all these horror elements that just replay over and over, but it's almost part of the genre. But if you can have jump scare and existential dread, you're getting people on the outside and in the inn. What is that business of, um, once you, as soon as you hear a lullaby with a little bit of echo on it, why is that? A, why is it so chilling? Uh, <laughs> why is, yeah, why is that a horror thing? Uh, I think it's a context. It's like taking something that is so intentionally for babies and children, and you're setting it into the context of, a dead body or something like that. It's just there's an extreme distance that your psychological scope has to travel to to try to have them meet, and they can't meet, and so it, it kind of curdles and trembles away and becomes mm. awful. Um, mm. I, I don't know. That sounds no. That, that was just me. <laughs> I, I haven't thought about it too much. No, I, I'm buying it. Um, so we've solved horror. Have you ever thought about right doing anything? I think horror is like the least. I I love watching horror films. Mm. It never occurs to me to write anything that I don't have any. I don't have a single bone of horror creativity in my body. Bizarrely, recently I've thought I ought to practice camera work because it's not it's not my thing. I mean, it's not what I do anyway. But c cinematography is something I feel like I ought to understand more. And particularly equipment makes me nervous. Mm. I'm worried I'll forget stuff. So I thought I ought to make something. And it, it did occur to me that one of the interesting things is me and uh, my son watched Halloween a couple of nights ago. And it's a great film. It's simple, and it, but it's all in the sound. Mm. It's all in the, the sound. And John Carpenter did the music. So you get the jump scares through sound, you get the atmosphere created through sound. And what's interesting, I think, is the beginning of the film. Uh, it's all in daylight. So it's not the usual monster lurking in the dark. The beginning of the film succeeds in creating a great deal of tension and wide shots, which traditionally give you uh, a sense of space and uh, they're not how you create tension. You create tension usually with extreme close-ups and a wobbly camera, but they are big wide shots, broad daylight, and all that's creepy is the music. And it occurred to me, ah, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I can do some practice doing some sort of sh short daylight hmm. horror film 
And I, so I might, I might well do that. I think. Do you have any idea at all what this horror film with the wide shots inspired by Halloween might be? No, I don't know. I could. I was thinking of using my daughter because she's quite horrific and would be make a quite quite horrific uh, little girl standing, standing, <laughs> you know, staring. <laughs> she's horrific. Well, yeah, she's. Damn. She's pretty. Well, you've you've seen her. She's pretty terrifying. Yes. I didn't want to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'll get her to stand and be scary, and I think she'll enjoy that. I think it might be a nice exercise, and it, it, it's incredibly cheap. So, yeah, I think I might have a go at that. Are you going to make, I mean... I'm all talk. I might not. You are all talk, Dan. You're not going to make a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let me tell you about... So you have not seen Skinamarink, is that correct? No, I haven't. Tell me about it. Have you heard about it? I've heard the name. I haven't heard more than that. Okay, so it sort of made waves uh, maybe a year ago. And first time I ever heard about it was because it had been, I heard that it was a very inexpensive movie. It was made for about $15,000. And it was the scariest movie that people had ever seen. So, mm. so people were saying at around the time that it was kind of making the festival rounds. Mm. Uh, the other thing was, is that it had secretly been pirated and put on the internet. And so there was kind of this flurry of, there's this super cheap, super strange horror film that is the scariest film anybody's ever seen. And now it's online and everything like that. So it's, it's really not the scariest movie anyone's ever seen, but it is, <laughs> again, that sort of existential dread type thing. It's incredibly moody, incredibly um, dull, which is... A strange dullness is almost a, a a primary feature of it. It's long shots. So the the filmmaker, uh, whose name is Kyle Edward Ball, is Canadian. And Skinamarink is, I think, like a children's song. It goes by a number of different names: Skidamarink, Skinamarink. But he basically just shot a little horror film in his own house using his brother, younger brother, and younger sister on a pretty good camera. It's like a Sony FX6. It looks like he shot it with like a a Game Boy. It looks really rough. It's very glitchy, very hard to see things, but everything's creepy, you know? So it's like, there's a lot of shots of like walls and floors and rooms with like television light flickering in them. There's cartoons. And the very simple story is these two children wake up in the middle of the night and their father has disappeared. But you hardly ever see these two children. Sometimes you see a foot or like an elbow or an arm sticking out or their shadows. Very rarely see them full-faced if at all. They don't talk much. If they do talk, it's muffled and strange. And <laughs> so it's almost like a, a film you feel like you'd see at a museum, like at a, a video installation that some weird artist has made, but it sort of has crossed over into the, into the world somehow. But I, I do feel like as a, as a film, it does hold together. It is its own thing. It's kind of, it's worth seeing for what it is. It is dull, but it's sort of pleasantly dull. You sort of watch and you're like, I'm still watching the same wall. You know, you're sort of astonished that you've been looking at this plain, ugly wall with, you know, glitchy, bad looking footage, but sort of beautiful in its execution. And I almost feel like it can serve as an inspiration for people who do want to make their own films because he just figured out a new angle in a way, you know, like he's figured out, oh, I, I can do this. Mm. I can make it really cheap. He just came up with his own brilliant solution mm. for how to make a full horror movie mm. almost just by rejiggering the aesthetics and not worrying about anything that anybody else worries about, <laughs> like script, <laughs> story, dialogue, main mm. characters. Um, there's not, none of that is there. There's not even really a villain. There's sort of this voice and you don't mm. know what it is. And by the end of it, I don't, I don't think anybody really ever figures out what, what it was about. 
it's almost like a childhood nightmare feeling. Like, what does it feel like? Or did it feel like when you were a child and you woke up in the middle of the night and you were frightened and something seemed off and wrong? Mm. It's almost like that sort of feeling and atmosphere is just played out for two hours. It's like a revisitation of that old fear that I think we all must have had. I mean, maybe there's some kids that went through life just never afraid <laughs> of the monster under the bed or in any whatever form. That sounds sounds very fascinating. And you, I suppose you have to have an enormous confidence and, yeah, a kind of a, a singularity of vision. Maybe sometimes those are the, the best, I think. I mean, it's, I, I, just because you can't, it can't be articulated. I, I think that sometimes there can be a theme or, you know, a meaning behind a film or a validity to it, even if you can't say what it is. Right. Well, this guy uh, started off by doing a YouTube channel in which he would mm. turn, like people would send in their dreams to him and he would turn them into little films. Wow. And I think along the way, he realized that there was a certain potency to this kind of sound and this kind of look that wasn't like the familiar thing and he could just i think his insight mm. and his epiphany for the film itself came from probably creating these dreams in the youtube channel and not really caring about what he was showing people mm. too much you know like it was probably just more fun and more like a dare like i'm gonna make them watch you know this door slowly open for 10 minutes and but he realized the potency of these almost still images mm. and yeah, I just I always think that's when someone sort of discovers something. And I'm sure you, I'm sure other people have done similar things, but it has the feeling when you watch it of a discovery of a, a unique way of doing something. Not that you want to copy it, but it's hard. It's I don't know. It sounds really really interesting. I mean, you know, I've never heard a review that said something was dull and then I wanted to watch it, but I think I will. I mean, I'd be curious to to. Hear what you thought. Yeah. I do recommend that you watch. <laughs> okay, I will. Thank you. Even though you might resent it and like be angry at me. I resent it anyway. I resent everything. You do. Um, you know, uh, I just want to say, if anyone wants to watch my play, it was on last week by the time this podcast comes out. Oh, that's right. So you need to time travel back a few days. Oh, we did a bad job, didn't we? We did a bad job. I mean, but That's good. good job for me. But. For my Putney, Vermont yeah. play. Go and see Sean's play in Putney, Vermont, because, you know, this is uh, something that, you know, again, a producer said to me, the thing about a play is you can't do a close-up. And I thought, right. yeah, you can. You A close-up is just uh, big, having something big relative to the to the rest of the stage. So Yeah, a close-up is when the, you know, the actors come to the front of the stage and, yeah. and they're closer and it does feel like a close-up. You know, it's sort of like, um, oh, yeah. it's a presentation of, you know, if an actor is coming to the front of the stage, they're telling you something in a different way than if they're, you know, mm. turned away from you or in a corner or in the back. You know, it's, it's like a, a volume level. There's always a parallel, isn't there, in every form? Yeah. I think there's always a parallel. You've got to translate it for different forms, but, and, and different stagings as well. One night we're doing Traverse Theatre, so the audience is on two sides. Oh, nice. And one, it's proscenium arch, so the audience is just on one side. And I always think you get, it's much more intimate and there's a sort of much more interactive feel if it's either in the round or traverse. And there's a brilliant theatre in Manchester in England called the Royal Exchange, which is built in the old corn exchange in, in Manchester, which is an enormous room. I think it was for a time the largest room in the world, but it's a beautiful 
old building with an enormous, enormous, like an aircraft hangar size room. But they've built a theatre inside that. And it looks like a sort of, it looks like a moonlander or something. Mm. It's sort of glass and steel. And it's a theatre in the round. And it's it's terrific seeing stuff there. I've seen many productions there. But uh, there's something about in the round productions that I really love. I don't know if I've ever seen something in the round. Is that a fully circulating, circular uh, theater, or is it, or is it three quarters, or is it half, or? Well, it can be either, I think. But yeah, the uh, the one at the Royal Exchange isn't fully in the round. No, when you visit, mm. we'll go there. But it's a terrific theater, and I mean, the it had presents other interesting things as well because you can't really have that much scenery, right? And uh, I like that because it makes it a lot cheaper. Well, your play seems, I mean, joke seems like it's ideally suited for theater in the round. Yeah. Because it is sort of, it's very low prop and it, just three characters. And it just feels like the way that you can pull that off is they're, they're facing in different directions, moving in different places. Like the whole circular space can be explored. Whereas, you know, mine's set in a graveyard and it just, it feels like a front facing type experience. Like I can't imagine people sitting in other places other than in front watching the thing. You know what? I bet you. Not to tell you your own thoughts, but I bet if you if you had to, you'd find a way around it and find it interesting. No, I, think. I bet I wouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm re- I'm down for anything. It's, I think it's because I haven't experienced it as a yeah. a theater goer. It's hard for me to put it into practice because you're adding dimensions that I haven't processed. You know, so the the way that I think about theater, and just in terms of my like least creative experience, it's almost cinematic you know it's almost like there's a screen up there where the audience is sitting in rows and rows and rows and they're beholding something that's before them almost in two dimensions uh so it's hard for me to move into that third dimension or cross to the side and get behind i love the idea of it i just can't i can't picture it quite i honestly think you think you will and you should in fact i think it's it will suit your writing very well um all right. Well, when I do one of those, you can take credit for it. I will. Believe me, anything okay. you do yeah. is mine. Is yours. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to dedicate this one to you as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll just ass- you don't need to. I'll assume it. So the first one was... Don't worry. I'll dedicate it to me. Okay. Well, uh, so the first one was to Dan, and this one will be to Dan again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what about my wife? What about you? What about my parents? My loving parents. When did I get dedications? Bollocks to them. Where were they? When were you when you released me from this knackers to your family. This is what is it? I this is all my doing. Okay, all right. I mean, I'm thankful still, but I'm starting to resent it a well, little bit. Well, I don't, I don't think you're quite thankful enough. Okay. Yeah, I think another couple of plays, you know, of, and, <laughs> then I'll be ready. Successes, and we'll see. Oh, you're just going to watch and see how they do. If they're bad, you're going to start distancing yourself. Oh, yeah. Okay, this one could be bad. This one could be real bad. (laughs) I maybe even wrote it just to cut this tie. (laughs) Okay. Well, what else? What else are we to say? I don't know. We seem to have gone on. Should we stop there? Yeah, we could probably stop. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this classic episode of how to make a film leave us a gloriously stunning review of our podcast on itunes and you'll not only claim a wicked stack of blu-ray films but you'll also win a copy of my play food and shelter signed by dan 
please feel free to email your questions to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. Sign up for updates on Dan's upcoming film, Hold Excalibur, at secretplanet.co.uk. How to Make a Film was hosted by Dan Freeman and Sean Hurley. Produced by Jamie Walsh. Edited by Ethan Walsh.